Welcome to ResTalk, your source for the latest insights, trends, news, and resources from leaders in the building performance and rating world. Here's your host, a committed building science enthusiast and registered professional engineer, and the podfather of energy efficiency, Bill Spohn. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the ResTalk podcast. This is episode 123, the best of ResTalk 2023. 11 episodes, 11 topics, 17 different guests, and over five hours of Res Talking in 2023. Covered a lot of ground in the Res Talk podcast in 2023, now going into our sixth year of episodes. We hope you stimulated your thinking and moved you into action in this ever-evolving world of home energy ratings and the peripheral topics. So please listen into this episode. It's pretty fast-paced. It's going to be a recap of the year in Res Talk. Maybe you missed a detail or two in these nuggets we have mined. If you'd like to dig in a little deeper into the topics covered in these episodes, there's a list in the show notes with links to the episodes to take you right there to the topic at hand. We'll be doing this in three segments on this episode. First one, we'll be talking about the topics of the organization, ResNet, its systems, and affiliates. We'll be talking with Steve Baden and John Hensley, about the 2023 mission and goals of ResNet and the priorities. We'll also spend some time with Cy Kilborn and Mark Johnson, who are the new leaders of the ResNet board, getting their thoughts on different topics, and also talking about the ResNet 2023 conference, which has already taken place, but just get an idea of what it takes to build that conference and some of the aspects of it and the planning that went into it from Emma Bennett and Clara Hedrick. So let's move on into this episode, the first part, part A, with the best of Res Talk 2023. Our main mission is to make the energy use of the homes transparent and thereby driving residential sector energy use toward net zero. I'm sure a lot of listeners are very familiar with ResNet, but some may be listening that aren't so familiar. How would you say that transparency comes about? Any detail in terms of the process? I think transparency starts with the core values of ResNet. We are a consensus-based organization. We write standards. We have ANSI standards that are national standards. So we're a national standards organization. We work closely with the International Code Council and other organizations to be transparent. And as we create these standards, we use committees that write the standards. These are members of the membership and industry professionals. And then we put all that out for public comment and it's full disclosure. Here's where our standards are coming from. Here's the people that created them. And then we send them out and let the public comment. And one thing that the industry sometimes comments about is why does that take so long? We create it, we send it out, and there's time for the public to be able to comment on that. When that comes back, every one of the comments that we receive is then answered. And then we may make changes to the standard or we may respond to the person submitting the request and say, yeah, we don't necessarily agree. Then it goes out again after it's been approved by the standing committee. And so this process does take time, but it's all about disclosure and getting that out to the public to where we don't have anything to hide. We're also educating. And as we're doing that, again, it's really full transparency. 
even though there is some turbulence there, the uncertainties of the economy, and incredibly bullish about the nature of the industry. And I think the other thing that goes back to the initial why we're here, I think what the HERS has done is show that the marketplace works. If you can give consumers credible language and credible ways to make decisions on, they will respond. And just to kind of go back and think about it is that in 2021, the average HERS index score was 58. Well, what does that mean? That's roughly 42% more efficient than a home built as recently as 2006, and incredibly over 70% more efficient of a home built in the 1970s. So the marketplace has responded, and if you can give clear signals out to consumers in a credible way through third party, they will make right decisions. And I think that's, to me, is what ResNet has accomplished and what the HERS does is provides that. And I think these numbers will go down. I think that one of the things about the tax credit that John just talked about is an inclusion of a $5,000 credit for builders who met the zero-ready home certification. So I think the movement is towards zero. We're seeing the scores continually going down. We're seeing builders now making commitments, national production builders, of her scores in the 40s. And you can see the clear path is I don't think the net zero is a impossible dream. I think with technologies going, various things like that, I think it's going to be an achievable goal. And we're going to be seeing that as a standard practice in our lifetimes. I think first and foremost is to work with my fellow board members and the ResNet members to continue to ensure that ResNet's programs continue to maintain its place as a gold standard within our industry. Also, too, I think it's important to continue to collaborate with our industry partners to work towards increasing the percentage of new homes that receive HERS ratings. In fact, I think just recently it surpassed the 3.6 million mark for homes that have been rated. And I think that signifies an increase of around 28,000 new homes rated from 2022. We're showing definitely an increase in the ratings, but I think to keep that momentum going is critical to the success of the organization as well as the raters we serve. I think one exciting area that has really got me pumped up is the area of carbon index ratings. I know that this year, ResNet will be launching its ResNet HERS carbon index, and I think that offers a whole new business opportunity for the HERS raters we serve, similar to a couple of years back when we came out with the water rating index. So I think it's important that we keep looking as we move forward to adding new opportunities for the HERS raters we serve, but also to continue to more diversify our business. I think that's important. So I think as we're moving forward, working with the board and the membership, I think those are just a couple of highlights. But I'm sure during our conversation on this program, we're going to hit a lot more. There's a lot of different aspects of the Inflation Reduction Act. There is a lot of money. I can't remember exactly what the total is at this point for home energy efficiency updates for existing homes. That money will be distributed through the states, so not at a national level which I think provides opportunities, but also makes it a little bit more difficult to create a standardized program nationally. ResNet doesn't have any initiatives yet to capture some of that to start to standardize existing home ratings, but it absolutely is something that we could look towards. We would need to identify the right partners. This isn't something that ResNet can do alone. This needs to be done 
in conjunction with state energy offices. And like Mark said, I think we want to make sure that we're playing the right role in this. There's a lot of organizations and people that are interested in this. And so we all need to work together properly. So there's a lot to figure out there. There's no major initiatives yet in place, but it's something that we should look at. Claire, what's the attendance look like? What's the makeup of how many people can come and how are things going with attendance? We submitted some preliminary surveys, just trying to get an idea of people's interest in this year's conference. And we were just blown away by the amount of RSVPs and questions we've got all year about the conference. Our capacity at the hotel is around 400 people. We're not expecting that we're going to fall short of that this year. Those people are coming for several, many reasons. I mean, there's the whole social aspect, which I really like, but there's the informational and technical tracks, and there's also continuing education hours. Can you speak to that, Clara? Yes, of course. Yeah. So this conference will be eligible for all 18 professional development credits as usual. And I'm getting a lot of questions about the sessions that will be there. And I'd be happy to talk about that overview. We're going to be publishing a final list of our sessions here soon. But our schedule at a glance includes general sessions each morning on the 16th and 17th, which will be followed by a number of concurrent breakout sessions each afternoon. And this year's session survey showed that the network was really excited about three session tracks in particular, those three being hers is the gold standard, latest developments in building science, and then, of course, energy codes. So I'm personally looking forward to our sessions related to ResNet's upcoming QA app. We also have a lot of coverage of the 45L sessions, which are going to be brought to you by EPA and DOE this year. So like I said, we'll have a published list of sessions soon, but that's the content that's going to be available at this year's conference and grant those their 18 professional development credits. I think that we are celebrating... Claire, is this our 21st year? I think so. I think it's our 21st conference. I'm going to have to double check on that. But I know that the early 2000s, they first hosted the event in Florida. And so it's grown organically since then. When I came on board, I joined in, I think, 2016 was my first annual conference. And I, of course, always have to give a shout out to Laurel, who was my mentor and did such a great job of running that event and was such a great help for handing over the reins to me. And I'm really excited to be handing over some of that stuff to Clara, too, because she's doing a really great job. But yeah, it's just been so great to see it change. Like I said, we have had a challenging couple of years that really put us in a position to look at new ways that we can deliver content and deliver the event and really find the value proposition of the conference. And I think that, of course, the in-person networking, but we have always been known to have really strong content and a lot of different content options for anybody that's related to the industry. Like we said, we have so many different topics and we're planning on doing our conference a little bit different this year. If you've been to the previous in-person ones that we would always do a general session the first day and then just breakouts through the rest of the days. We've decided this year that we're condensing our three-day format into two. We're going to be offering the general sessions in the morning for both days, and then we're still going to have a great selection of breakouts over the course of the event. I'll also mention, too, that as part of the pre-conference, in addition to the volunteer tour and the KB microgrid tour, we also are going to be offering ICC certification training course. So you can do the tests on demand, but this is a great opportunity to get training for that. And that will be a separate registration link that we'll post on the website. In this next segment, we'll move into a discussion on building and building data. Ryan Mears, one of our favorite guests, will share 
some data and some insights into the energy-efficient home trends. James Rodriguez and Ned Munoz will talk to us about the HERS Index and the Texas House Bill 3215. Robert Broad of AM Edge Development will join us to talk about energy-efficient home building at scale. Then at the end of this Part B segment, Michael Lee will talk about best practices in construction technology education. There's some really good thoughts in each one of these episodes. Hopefully we pulled out the best little nuggets. But again, there'll be links in the show notes if you want to dig more into those episodes, the full-length episodes themselves. Okay, let's get into building and building data, part B. You track the ratings. That's an important figure for ResNet to track. Over what time period are you tracking those and what are the trends there? Basically, every HERS rating that gets submitted to the ResNet registry, we have several hundred data points on each of those homes that are rated. And so the ResNet building registry was started actually in 2012. We started accepting ratings. The first full year was 2013. So we have now a decade of ratings in the ResNet registry going back to 2013. And from 2013 through 2022, we saw 129% increase in the number of ratings submitted annually which is a great number. And we've had year-over-year growth now for that decade. So we've consistently had more ratings each year than the previous year, going all the way back to 2013. And what type of housing stock is evaluated in these ratings? Most of the ratings are going to be new construction, actually. Typically, about 95% are going to be new construction. And then it's there's a breakdown of between single family and multifamily. Single family is going to be around 80%, at least that's what it was for last year. Typically comes in between 75 and 80% of all ratings are going to be single family or duplexes. And then the other 20 to 25% are going to be multifamily ratings. And I imagine the rating activity has concentrations in various states. Can you bring forth some of the data on what's happening in different states? Yeah, so because we're so new construction heavy, our ratings often follow the big new construction markets. Many of those are going to be in the South. Actually, in terms of climate zones, the number one climate zone for ratings is climate zone two, which is the Southern US, big chunk of the Southern US, I should say. But we also look at the percent of new homes that get rated by state. So we take a look at permit data and compare the number of permits pulled in a state against the number of single-family and duplex HERS ratings that happened in that state. And once again this year, Massachusetts comes in at number one with 82% of all new homes in that state receiving a HERS rating. And then Indiana actually comes in second, and they've been a high performer for a while. They had 68% of all new homes rated last year. And then in 2022, we had eight states that actually achieved 50% or more of all new homes in that state getting a rating. So these are really good numbers. And in those states, really demonstrating the market penetration of HERS ratings in new construction in a number of states. We do look at average HERS scores. We always publish the national average for HERS scores. And last year, that was a 58 which is unchanged from 2021, which was also a national average of a 58. The average single-family HERS-rated home was about 2,700 square feet, a little shy of 2,700 square feet. And then when we start digging into more of the component-level data, we're looking at things like foundation type, 
insulation values, windows and mechanical systems, ventilation systems, envelope leakage, and we even take a look at solar as well. So we break out what each of those looks like at an average level across all ratings that happen in the U.S. So can we take a peek at some of the component data and just tease out a little bit of what you're seeing in trends? And some of it, I guess, foundation type and envelope leakage rates, that might be related to climate zones. Do you break it down that way too? Yeah, we do look at climate zones. What's interesting on the foundation type side is that slab foundations are just far and away the most common of the approximately 338,000 ratings last year. Over 300,000 had a slab foundation. And then there's a few others that are very small numbers like vented crawl space or a conditioned or unconditioned basement. And then we have an other category, which is those homes that may have more than one type of foundation, perhaps a slab and a crawl space or a basement and a crawl space. But far and away, slab is the most common in terms of foundation type. So we'll stick with you for a minute, James. And can you tell us what the purpose of the House Bill 3215 is? Initially with House Bill 3215, we wanted to come up with a hybrid approach to introduce a second universal pathway of state energy compliance. The very first universal pathway was adopted back in 2001, and that was the Energy Star program. And everybody knows what the Energy Star program is, an above code, energy code compliance program by design. We wanted to come up with something that was similar in nature, very much performance-based, but also had some infrastructure towards the traditional codes, be it the IECC energy codes. And so we worked together with several stakeholders. Texas Association Builders led the charge on that effort. They engaged greater companies like ours. They engaged leading builders of America. They engaged a lot of other stakeholders and to try to come up with a hybrid approach. We knew that the HERS Index was a very, very popular program in Texas, has been for many, many years, since the mid-90s, really, that some builders have been using it that long in the state of Texas. So we wanted to introduce a pathway that would allow for that mechanism to be utilized to demonstrate energy code compliance. And so that was the main objective, was to come up with something that wasn't totally rigid within the box of the ICC codes, but had more flexibility, specifically on product flexibility. And we used the ANSI 301, i.e. the HERS index standard as a baseline for that. And then over time, we added the 2018 backstops, prescriptive backstops, and the mandatories of the 2018 ICC to give it some more rigid code infrastructure. That's what the end product ended up being at the end of the process. So over the years, we've recognized that with the ever-increasing inflexibility and extraordinarily high levels of mandated energy codes, housing affordability was significantly suffering. And we were seeing this just progress over the years. And while TAB, and TAB is Texas Association of Builders, we refer to ourselves as TAB, while TAB recognizes the need to encourage energy efficiency, it's imperative that housing affordability is not jeopardized in that process. So We believe in voluntary market-driven solutions that best achieve that energy efficiency. And new home construction, new home construction and remodels are significantly more energy efficient than existing housing stock due to better insulation, energy efficiency, appliances, other improvements stemming from more modern building codes and just market awareness in general. What we were realizing is that it makes little sense to apply outdated and static requirements to new 
homes and residences. And as our National Association of Home Builders has testified before Congress on numerous occasions, targeting new homes harms housing affordability and encourages people to remain in older, less energy efficient homes. In turn, this results in higher energy usage, higher greenhouse gas emissions, and really a lower standard of living. So over the years, as we saw this, we thought we needed to do something here. And I think it came to a head with ICC and the 2021 Energy Code adoption process. It was very contentious. It was a controversial one. It resulted in ICC, and this is the International Code Council, overhauling that very same process. We also were seeing that those 2021 energy provisions, as they were coming down the line, as we saw them being created, were unreasonably raising the cost of construction, especially home construction, and pricing tens of thousands of Texans out of the housing market if that code was just adopted straight up. And so this is real important to us because as Texas A&M Real Estate Research Center has found a couple times now, in Texas, for every $1,000 you raise the price of a home, you're pricing out 22,000 households. And so it does make a big difference. And we thought what we want to do is update the Texas Energy Code with the latest ANSI Energy Rating Index. And this we knew and were seeing would allow homeowners and builders to choose the features best suited for them based on cost and or products and preferences. It would encourage, and it does encourage, we're seeing the innovation in energy efficiency and helps provide a more competitively priced product as well as a home in the market. That's what was behind us. That's the timeline. And so last session in 2021, we created and updated this performance path, which allows the builder and the homeowner to choose what is best for their particular home, for their pocketbook, and for their preferences. So with all that work going on and some of your background working for the top five builders, there's been a lot of innovation. Is there anything new or innovative coming from AMH that you could talk about? Yeah, I think there's a few things. Actually, we've experimented and have actually launched at least one community, including solar on the roofs. And that's a little bit different model than most REITs would experience. But we were able to experiment with a community called Bella Luna in Las Vegas. And it's actually been very well received. So those homes are actually leasing up as we speak. And we're looking forward to more feedback there. But a couple other things. We actually... And a number of our markets are using a new advanced duct system called RIA, R-H-E-I-A. The nice thing with RIA is it complements some strategies that we already have in play. So for instance, we include an HVAC closet and conditioned space in all of our homes. And again, that falls in line with our overall goal of providing desirable, durable, and efficient homes. So obviously operating that HVAC equipment inside of conditioned space versus in a hot attic or those types of things has both a durability impact as well as an efficiency impact. And then with RIA, we're able to use relatively small diameter ducts, also 100% in conditioned space. So again, just reducing that impact from, if you picture a Phoenix attic in the middle of summer at 150 degrees, it's a big difference to run your ductwork within a nicely conditioned space versus through that environment. And a lot easier to get around obstructions, so just smaller ducts enable us to have a better duct installation overall. So really excited about that. And then maybe 
One other thing that I would highlight is that uh, a number of our markets in the Mountain West, they're exploring and have already done some demo homes with what are known as frost-protected shale foundations, so more energy-efficient foundation system that has been around for probably the better part of 30 years, and it's written into the code, but is very unfrequently used by production home builders. It takes a little bit of expertise, but we're looking to move the ball forward in that regard as well. The Houses That Work series, I think, still continues to this day. And a lot of building science is non-obvious to people, even those that have been around the industry for a long time. So how do we pay that forward? So enjoyed the experience immensely, got to meet and interact with a ton of great folks on that board, both on the manufacturer side, as well as raters, the who's who within the industry, right? And seeing the education and how important that was, I've also taken that to heart. So we do a lot of education within our AMH team on just basic understanding. So whether it's understanding, well, what is manual JDNS? What is, when we're talking about a low E window, what does that really mean? Understanding the why behind it instead of just going through a checklist. So that's probably one of the takeaways that I've had over the years is taking the time to explain to people what we're trying to accomplish instead of just telling them, here's the specs that we want to see. I think you have a richer experience as an employee and probably a better experience for the products that are built. I think it gets at even employee satisfaction, right? I think people want to take pride in what they build and we can attract a better cohort, a better group of team members if we're walking the talk, but also explaining to them why these things are important. And that feels good to go back to your family at the end of the day and say, hey, I'm part of really building a terrific home. And that's the point of pride. And I think it gets us access to better talent at the end of the day too. Absolutely. We want to make people's work worthwhile. Do you have any closing thoughts for the listeners who do make up a group of product manufacturers, builders, auditors, raters, real estate professionals, a wide audience that we cast in that for the podcast? What would you like to leave them with? Maybe a couple of thoughts. One, I'm just continuing to be such a huge fan of hers. I have been from early on and continue to be. I really like and appreciate, again, the simple metric. And when people ask me, well, why aren't you using this, this best product on the market, known to man? There's also a sense that we have to have a what's production ready. So we are willing to, of course, push the envelope, but we do so in a manner that's logical and pragmatic. And that doesn't always align with everyone's goals. But that doesn't mean that everyone doesn't have a lane in this. If we didn't have the people that are doing the ultra low energy use homes, they wouldn't be blazing the path for what becomes production ready later. So I think just having people be mindful that everyone's got a role to play in this. And so whether it's the people building one or two ultra efficient homes, or those of us that are responsible for thousands of homes, and it should be a symbiotic relationship, should be a really mutually beneficial discussion over time of how we get better, how we continue to lower the costs, improve the execution. So those are things that I'm excited about is what I've always been interested in within the business is that interesting pivot around what's production ready and what's not. And how do we, with scale, bring the cost down on some things? Yeah, we've had some pretty great success stories with some of our students. Several have gone on to work for other companies. I'm proud to say, I know for the ones that I've taught anyways, I've got five of them out there that are running their own companies now. One's a timber framer. The other two are general contractors. Three actually went further. One went into safety management and now is, has his own safety company. He's doing the DFW area. There's been some pretty great stories that have come out of us. And some of them just end up being helpers. 
some of them just come to learn and they take that back to their residence and maybe they can improve their own house or their own properties. But I'd say we have a, about 70% end up in the industry, 30% fall into another industry somewhere. But yeah. I think most of the listeners here would probably be those who may be established. Take some time and teach somebody underneath you. I think that's one of the biggest concerns I have about the ones who are aging out or retiring out of our industry is that for so long, there was this fear that if I teach somebody my job, they're going to take my job. And now we've come to the end of this and we've had this gap of people not really mentoring those up underneath and really training them up on what's important and what needs to be taken care of on these sites and to be able to produce these things. There's plenty who do a great job of it, but there's far too many that have hoarded their knowledge and not shared it with others along the way. And lastly, I think to not be afraid to make any mistakes. I always tell my students that mistakes are just learning opportunities. And we obviously want to minimize learning opportunities, but we also want to maximize our learning from those opportunities. I believe that would be just the closing I would have for that. As we move into the final segment of this episode, the best of Res Talk 2023, we'll be talking about carbon, ESG, and her zero. Philip Ferry and David Goldstein join us to talk about an update on the ResNet Carbon Index. Chris Magwood talks about the new ResNet Embodied Carbon Advisory Committee. Rob Lochner and David Best discuss with us Santa Fe's Habitat for Humanity, building homes with her zero scores. We'll wrap it up with Matthew Cooper talking about ResNet appointing a new ESG advisory group which Matthew is heading. The ResNet Home Energy Rating Index, the HERS Index, has been an important part of ResNet's offering since the organization was started. And it really dates back to a time where if you knew the energy consumption, the way the HERS Index calculates it, you had a pretty good idea what the emissions of carbon and other pollutants were. You had a pretty good idea of what the costs both to society and to the home dweller would be. What we've seen in years, though, is the divergence of those metrics. We've seen that carbon emissions that affect the climate from energy consumption depend a lot on where you are and on what time of day you use it. And this makes sense. We've got lots of places in the country where there's plenty of solar and plenty of wind when the wind's blowing and when the sun's shining. And it's all coming on at once. So the grid is very clean at those particular hours. But there are other hours of the day, typically after the sun goes down around 7 p.m., when the utility is a little stressed and is putting on all of the generation they can find, including their oldest and dirtiest units. So it becomes important if you're worried about carbon emissions to have some metric so that you can answer the question, if I do this with the building rather than that with the building, if I add more insulation, if I put in lower SHTC windows, how does that affect my carbon emissions? Even more important in the long term, if I put in a device that can allow me to select which hours it operates, I can choose to optimize my energy consumption for the clean times of the year. So ResNet decided a couple of years ago to develop this kind of a carbon index and did it in collaboration with the Department of Energy through their national lab, NREL. And the index now exists as an ANSI standard, and it's available to be 
used by any raider automatically as part of the software to any user, whether it's the homeowner or the renter or a jurisdiction that might enforce codes to see what the carbon impact of the house is. Then net zero energy. But if you don't calculate them differently, you're going to get the wrong answer. In that sense, I think we are in the U.S. and Canada, well, I guess just the U.S. because Canada doesn't have the data set yet. We're doing it right. And maybe one or two other countries are getting it right. And maybe none is. I'll direct this question to Philip. Are there other similar programs or projects going on in different states in the U.S. of this like? I'm not sure I understand the question, but basically ResNet is operating on pretty much a national basis. And so it is an ANSI standard, an American national standard that has been properly promulgated. And so it is the current national standard for how residential carbon indexes should be calculated. In the time of day use, that's a big factor into all this? Yes, absolutely. Because basically, all of the ResNet software is now required to be hourly software calculations. Hourly energy use calculations are required to be done by all the software. And so that hourly energy use calculation can be applied against these hourly emission rates that are provided within the emission rate database. And so you can basically sum the carbon emissions up over the whole year where they were all, each one at every hour was tied to that hour of the year and that particular geographic region of the country. Around that time, there was an ISO standard developed for how to measure the environmental impacts of making materials. And that includes all materials. You could do the same thing for a shoe or a window for a building. So as that standard got picked up, more and more companies started making what are called environmental product declarations, which is now like the same way you started measuring fuel mileage in cars 40 or 50 years ago. It's a set of rules by which you decide what you measure and how you measure it and under what conditions. So when I sent myself back to school in 2016 to really do a, a deep dive into this, and I was able to put together enough of these environmental product declarations to say, oh, I could reasonably represent a residential building now. So I started looking at modeling a couple of sample buildings, same building size, shape, level of performance, all of that kind of stuff. And I realized, oh, if I am picking materials from the high end of the emissions spectrum, a home could have as much as half a ton of emissions per square meter of floor area, which is shocking. <laughs> it's a lot of emissions. Or at the best end of the spectrum, it could be close to zero emissions. And so I had this huge, wide range of results, and it was entirely dependent on what materials you picked. So I think there was a lot of concern early on when people started raising the notion of the embodied carbon of the materials that what we would find is, oh, that's in direct competition with energy efficiency because the embodied carbon people are going to tell you to use less materials, but on the energy efficiency side, we want to add more insulation. We might want to add a pane of glass to the window, et cetera. So really early on, what I was seeing in my research was, no, you can achieve the same level of performance, but have this really wide range of emissions results from the materials. And so my mission is to help people understand that and then start knowing which choices make a big difference and how to make the same energy efficient building or even a more energy efficient building without driving 
emissions on the materials side, because we don't really benefit if everybody makes a passive house level home, but they do it with really high emitting materials. What my research showed was that's no better for the climate and maybe even worse than if they didn't bother going to that length. So I'm chairing that committee, and it is to give advice to the ResNet board on the notion of whether or not ResNet should write a standard to look at how to measure embodied carbon in new home construction. To me, there's a lot of really great reasons why ResNet is the right place to do that. I'm sitting on the standards committee for ASHRAE, which is doing a very similar thing for all buildings. But when they talk about all buildings, they really tend to be talking about large buildings. I think when I look at what a HERS rater does currently, the information that they're tracking and the way that they're making a model of a building to give it a HERS rating, they have all the information and they're gathering all the right inputs to do the embodied carbon side really easily. They already know what the materials are. They know all the spatial volumes. They know the R values, like everything that I put together to make just an embodied carbon model of a building a HERS rater is already doing, and it would really just be a matter of them associating that area or volume of material with a carbon factor for the right material. It seems like a great fit. Or the software doing the association. Exactly. The software doing it would make the most sense. And so also the raters are already the ones helping builders with decarbonization plans on the operational side. They're the ones who are telling a builder hey, you're on track, you're not on track, here's what your emissions look like. And so it seems like that it would be a really great fit to have those same raters, not necessarily that they have to do it, but for them to be able to offer that. And so I think doing a standard with ResNet would mean that we craft a standard in a way that specifically works with the workflow of a rater versus something like this ASHRAE standard, which is going to be great, but it's going to work in the way that works great for architects building really large buildings, but it'll be a really hard thing for a residential builder to put into practice. Whereas I think we could come up with a standard that works really well and integrates really well with the HERS Raider workflow. Rob, when was the first net zero home produced in this project? Back in 2020, early 2020, we piloted our first home. We actually ran gas lines to the home but we never hooked up a meter. We wanted to pilot and see if we could run the whole thing on just electricity and the solar panels that we installed on the roof. The homeowner, the feedback we got and what we saw, the evidence was that everything was working as we had planned. And so there was no need to hook up the gas lines for that house. That was our first. And since that day, our construction committee made a recommendation to our board that going forward, all homes be all electric and net zero. And the board adopted that. So Wow. And do you monitor these homes going forward? Do you keep track of them somehow, some of that data? Maybe David's better. He's the data guy technology, right? (laughs) I think actually right now we're not using our HERS radar to do that piece of the work, but we're increasing our monitoring capabilities. So the house that we're just finishing up right now We've installed a system that will monitor not only their production from their solar panels, but all their usage. And I've been talking to another green energy person at another affiliate in Colorado who has a system where he can tell where which every appliance in the house, how much energy it's using. They have a really good monitoring system. And so we're looking at possibly even increasing what we're doing now to that standard so we could get that good data coming back to us. I think I would just echo Rob in saying that there's a lot of interesting work to be done now that 
is on the front lines of what needs to be done to meet the challenge of climate change and of transition to a cleaner energy system. There are a lot of obstacles, but there's also a lot we can do now just to improve new and existing homes to meet that challenge and prepare for a greener future. And you're living examples that it's, oh, would you call it easy to do or it's straightforward? Maybe that's a better way to put it. A lot of it is conceptually straightforward. And most of the challenges really are logistical or cultural. That's what really gets in the way. Builders have trouble. If anything that they need to do to build a tighter house messes with their usual workflow in terms of what trades come to the site at what time and whether they have to come back again or not to do this or that, that's a big headache for them. But what we're trying to achieve is actually pretty simple and straightforward. And the other obstacle, the cultural one, is just people are cranky and don't want to change the way they've done things, even when it is easy. We'll be talking about the reasoning for ESG. Why don't you first define ESG from your perspective as a company that works in these areas of mechanical, electrical, plumbing, and design? Sure. So ESG is environmental, societal, and governance. It's become a catchphrase that's gained a lot of popularity on the fringes of media, on the spectrum of those that are vehemently for it, those that are vehemently against it, and those that don't understand what it is. It's come predominantly from the investment community, which has been the primary area of focus between the SEC and their guidance towards companies that are publicly traded on how to report their corporate operations and commitment to environmental, societal, and governance priorities. So this is a big factor for investments in the financial world. And there's some factors I have here that the Structured Finance Association estimates $11.6 trillion, or $1 out of every four invest in the U.S., goes towards ESG strategy. So it's a big one out of every four. That's a big number. The water standards have been something in development for a very long time. But really, until the last just few years, we haven't seen as much critical path necessity for them when it comes to actual water shortages. But then it also plays a key role in builders' ability to gain approvals for new construction. So you look at things, for example, Florida has passed standard for density allowances, exceptions to the allowances for builders that build with gray water recovery systems so that they're not impacting the drinking water table to the extent that other more traditional construction is. So being able to see these opportunities, whether they're driven by necessity and mandate or they're driven by opportunity, is something else that we have a role to play on behalf of the builders. It's a much bigger topic than I believed. (laughs) (laughs) It really seems central to the future mission of ResNet. It is. And when we look at our industry, it's a relatively consistent drumbeat that the biggest problem outside of material costs for builders is labor. So when we look at workforce development as a societal impact and benefit, that's where we're starting to see things like the Home Building Institute, the leading builders of America and ResNet working with organizations to provide training opportunities for people to consider the trades rather than solely being focused on secondary education. So there's a missing middle role that Resnick and Energy Smart Builders has to play in the change in that community dialogue 
how to provide real opportunity for people to consider an alternate profession to those that are purely based on secondary education. Well, that's a wrap. That's 2023 for Res Talk. Our goal is to communicate late-breaking news and thoughtful insights about the vast array of topics in the rapidly expanding world of residential energy ratings to all the stakeholders in the resident ecosystem. I think we accomplished that this year with the topics that we talked about in this episode and all the episodes you can link to. So whether you're a housing consumer, rater, builder, realtor, or appraiser, you want to hear about some of these topics, about these evolving trends in home energy ratings. I want to share with you a quote for today by Rebecca Searle. That's the funny thing about time. It is only looking back that it's easy to connect the dots, to see exactly why everything needed to happen the way that it did. And we hope you are happy with the way that ResTalk turned out in 2023. And we look forward to having your ears back again for ResTalk 2024. If you want to feed back to ResTalk and ResNet on what you've heard here today, want to hear a new topic covered or just have a general question, please send an email to info at resnet, R-E-S-N-E-T U-S. If you've not subscribed, please consider doing so and rating us if you're on the Apple iPod app. Thank you as always for listening to ResTalk. We hope you have a great end of the year and we look forward to having you back again in 2024. Take care. Thanks for listening to the ResTalk podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spohn, produced by William P. Spohn, LLC, and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for ResTalk. We would appreciate a review on iTunes or on the podcast app. This will help others find the show. We look forward to talking again soon on ResTalk.